Welcome to the Lessons Learned Podcast, a podcast reflecting on the lessons we've learned and those we're still in the process of learning. I'm Komal, your host. I'm an interviewer, investor, and someone who has lived a lot of life in a short time. I built this podcast as a place for us to reflect, to be together, and to learn from one another. Let's get into it. Welcome to episode 37 of the Lessons Learned podcast. This week is an interview with an incredible friend of mine, Sahaj Kohli. She is the founder of Brown Girl Therapy. And if you haven't heard of Brown Girl Therapy on Instagram, then you must go and check it out. She has created an inclusive community around the mental health of children of immigrants. And it's been so beautiful because we have been doing these bi-weekly calls since the beginning of quarantine. And so it's been almost five months and both of us have had, had these major milestones and goals that we wanted to achieve and set out to work on when quarantine first started. And over the last five months, we've been able to see each other progress and do those things. For Sahaj, finishing her intense summer term with school, leaving her position at the Huffington Post, um, where she was a senior editor, and doing incredible things with the community, hitting over 100,000 followers on Instagram for Brown Girl Therapy because of the resonance of her work, having over 10% engagement rates on her post, which is insane on the platform. And so seeing her take this leap and go all in on Brown Girl Therapy, create a Patreon where folks who support her work can financially back her and support her, and knowing what is on the horizon for her in that community, oh my gosh, it is incredibly inspiring as both her friend and admirer. And so this episode is a lot around what it means to build community that looks like us, a community that we feel we belong to, and the community that we always wish we had. And in my relationship and friendship with Sahaj and in our support of each other over the years, that has really been what we've cultivated for ourselves. As Sahaj says in the episode, she talks about creating our own table and saying we don't need to ask permission anymore. We can create our own spaces as brown women, as BIPOC women, um, that we need to rise, be well, feel connected to one another and elevate and continue to dismantle systems of oppression. And that is what we dive into. And so before we dive into the episode, I just want this to be a reminder for you of cultivating meaningful community, checking in with yourself and seeing what gaps are there in the community I now have. What do I feel like is missing? And then going on the hunt and searching for the answer to that question. And that's what happened when Sahaj and I first met. We met through Instagram DM three years ago, two, two or three years ago. And since then, we've cultivated a deeply meaningful friendship online and offline. And so use this as a moment, use the, listening to this episode as an opportunity to reflect on what it is you want to bring into your life when it comes to how you connect with others and the supports that you need. Now, without further ado, here's my interview with Sahaj. Hello. You're so good. You look so beautiful today. Good at you. I'm Thank you. Carl. <laughs> They're, they're in the midst of the drying. TikTok has taught me one or two things about these curls these days. <laughs> uh, but I was just sharing a little bit about how we met. And you DM'd me. You were going on your world tour. Um, and you were going to be writing about it for HuffPo, which uh, so many of us benefited from the stories from that year. 
But what you had um, asked was if we could do a workshop together while you were in town. And then that workshop turned into a dinner series, which was, I think, both of, both of our first experience with like a conversation club IRL experience. There was 12 of us. It was so wonderful. And we connected so deeply from heart to heart with each other. And it felt like that one day we ended up, it felt like we'd known each other for years. <laughs> It really did. And I will have to admit that that event actually is what inspired me to even run conversation clubs now through Round Ball City. Um, but I remember DMing you and I remember seeing your account and just being like, I've never been scared to reach out to people on Instagram and just either send some love, you know, tell them that I love what they're doing or even just ask if I can meet them. And that has worked in my favor so many times. Um, and this is one of those times because now we are really good friends and I feel like we're going to be partners doing life together, um, which is incredible because I would have never known you had I not just DM'd you randomly. A hundred percent. And I remember creeping hard once we did become friends. I'm actually, I'm getting a little bit of an echo, so ahead. could you elevate me off your desk? If you got a book or something, you could throw me on. Yeah, I can actually just hold it. Is that better for you guys? Uh, yeah, it's just when it's on the desk, then the reverb happens. So, uh, but if you do want to place on a book, I actually have you on I'm Judging You by Lavi Ajayi, which is the book <laughs> I'm sitting on. <laughs> but I'm honored. <laughs> I wanted to start with a little toast. Yes, just going to take a sip. <laughs> <laughs> you crossed the 100K mark with Brown Girl Therapy. I know. Cheers Thank to that. you. <laughs> <laughs> My it's... glass is actually this one. <laughs> It's pretty incredible, um, just given the fact that Brown Girl Therapy is only 13 months old. Um, I truly did not expect this. Mm -hmm. And I remember when you first created the account last year. Yeah. And just you planting that seed and sharing, like, your hopes and dreams for it. Can you share a little bit about what it was like, what was the inspiration at that time 13 months ago when you were like, I know this is something I need to bring into the world? You know, it's funny because why it started is very different from what it's become. But I think the sentiment is true in that um, I was just coming back from my honeymoon and I was coming back to New York with my husband and we only had a couple months left in New York before moving to DC. And he had asked me this really interesting question. He was like, what's something that you would never think that you really want to do in New York that you didn't do in the seven years you lived there? Mm -hmm. um, and it was interesting because it wasn't like a, what's a touristy thing you want to do? What's a place you want to see? It was just like, how can you make the most of being in this great city? And the first thing that came to mind for me, I think I was coming, <clears throat> coming down from a few identity crises, having married someone outside of my race and culture. And I was like, I would love to meet all of the wonderful South Asian women in the city that I never got to meet. Like, how can I make that happen? Mm -hmm. um, and at that point I had already had the handle because I knew I was going to grad school for mental health. I knew that I wanted to have a professional page, um, but I ended up using that platform with at the time only like a hundred followers and just being like, who's in New York? Let's meet in Central Park at this time. I'll be there with snacks and a blanket, like come meet me if you want. And I did that twice. And the first time there was about eight women who showed up. And the second time there was about 15 totally different women, all strangers. And it was just the most remarkable thing to feel so connected to people who shared in my identity struggles and just things that I had been thinking about. And I had spent so long not having that, that it was just the catalyst for me building Brown Girl Therapy. And when you look at sort of that experience in the beginning of those two gatherings, what seeds were planted for you there? Was it that feeling of, oh my God, there's really something here? 
Um, and what was that response that you got from everyone who was there for those first two gatherings? So I used those two gatherings as market research um, to some degree in that I was like, well, I have this Instagram platform. What should I do with it? Do you like the name? Like, here's what I'm thinking. How do you feel about it? And I think what I was gathering was that mental health is not talked about in our community um, as South Asian women, as South Asians in general. Um, and most of the people who showed up, I think all of them were South Asian women. Um, and that goes you know, mental health can be literally anything, setting boundaries, the guilt that we feel, um, significant issues that we have in some of our relationships, romantic or family. And that just, those were the seeds that were planted. It was like, okay, we need to have a platform. And there are platforms that exist, right? So I didn't feel like I was um, creating something relatively new, but I knew that it was something I was passionate about and wanted to do. I think what ended up happening that became relatively new was that I have a background in journalism and writing. And I'm very much a believer in like narrative storytelling. So I used that skill set to kind of share my own stories. Um, and I think that's what resonated so deeply with people when I was building Brown Girl Therapy. It's been like a pleasure to watch because we have bi-weekly calls all through mm -hmm. quarantine, which has been so nice every other Monday, even when you were going through the kit, which I'll get to eventually the intensity of grad school and working full time and running Brown Girl Therapy. We've been able to keep this consistency of just supporting each other in our dreams and goals during this really hard season. And it's been really powerful for me. And I hope you, I can't speak on your behalf, but we have so much fun in these conversations. They end up turning into like two and a half, three hour calls sometimes. Um, but when you talk about writing, I get fascinated because you've had the experience now of working with uh, HuffPo and being able to work with folks on their personal essays mm -hmm. on how they're telling their stories. What have you learned in that process in terms of the things that you go back to as you're writing for BGT and trying to figure out how can I not only resonate, but be truthful and honest about my experience? Like, is there a bit of a formula that you play with or that you've seen work for the writers that you work with as well? I mean, the biggest thing I see and that I've experienced and I hear through building Brown Girl Therapy is that people are scared to tell their stories for a number of reasons. One, uh, what if it's not received well? What if uh, people can be really judgmental online, right? So you're essentially putting your heart out on the internet for people to kind of uh, do what they want with it. And that can be really scary. And I think another thing is that I get people who pitch me essays who are like, well, I have, you know, they'll justify it. I have the story. It may not be that great. It might not be that important. It might not even be worth telling. And it's like, no, we all have stories that are worth telling, mm. right? Like I'm one person building Brown Girl Therapy and hopefully I can grow it to a place where other people can use the platform to share their stories once I get time to do that. But I highly encourage people to keep sharing their stories because I'm only one person, right? And their representation matters. I, I can't represent all of the South Asian female experience living in this country. I can't represent all of the child of immigrant stories um, because there are people who have very different experiences than me. And we need to hear all of the stories in order to feel like there's a sense of community that you know there's representation, that people who don't look like us can understand that we're not a monolith. Um, and I think that's the one thing that I keep trying to remind people is that it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what your story is, it deserves to be told. Um, and I think like that's, that's really the barrier and the wall that people need to kind of climb over before they get to a place where they're comfortable sharing. Mm -hmm. I remember you saying to me, cause I was having that experience too, just kind of stepping into this 
title of educator around resilience, not being a mental health professional, but feeling, having gone through so much. And you shared with me, if you've experienced it, if you've lived it, you can talk about it, you can share about it. And I think that so many people feel like they are not even qualified to talk about their own experiences. And how have you, like, can you share a little bit about how you've worked with your writers or even just with your own story? What enabled you to know that that was true, that if you've lived it, you can share it? I think, you know, it goes back to community care. I think um, <clears throat> we can do all of the things that we can do to kind of take care of ourselves on our own in whatever way that, that looks right for us. But in order to really build out community care, that is the foundation of that is storytelling and um, connection through storytelling. And I think that's the, that's the kind of lens I use to kind of, you know, encourage people to share their stories. Um, I don't think that you need to be a professional of whatever mental health or any field in order to know something about it. I think lived experience and anecdotal experience can speak volumes. And I'm learning that myself just by being in the mental health field. Um, I want to be a licensed clinician so I can work with people ethically and help them through their struggles. But what I'm learning through the research I'm doing with my professors and whatnot is that there are so many anecdotal things that I can point to that are a part of the framework for a lot of children of immigrants when it comes to how they struggle and how they manage their struggles that haven't been reviewed or researched yet, right? Mm -hmm. So does that make them less important? No, not at all. So I think if you've lived it, then you have an, you have an experience that someone else will likely really learn from and want to hear and resonate with. Um, I think it's just a matter of knowing that and like realizing that it's okay if you've gone through an experience that maybe a lot of people have gone through. Maybe you're getting a divorce and you're like, how is my story different? But think about the intersection of your identities. If you are a South Asian woman living in a really remote location in the US, um, your experience is really unique and you should share how those, those factors compound each other to help someone else, you know? Mm -hmm. And something that I've seen happen as, as we've, as you shared with me, some of the incoming things and opportunities that have shown up is when we do share our stories and there's resonance like there has been for you through Ground Girl Therapy, you then get a seat at the table. And yes, these tables weren't built for us and they are tables that are rooted in white supremacy and all these different factors, but you are now sitting at the table and being invited to that table. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at that encouragement of people to share their stories because you don't know what the outcomes will be. How do you now look at this platform and see it as a tool for the change that you want to see in this space of therapy and mental health? Um, representation is so incredibly important. The mental health field is so white. And that, you know, that doesn't mean that white therapists are bad or can't help you, but it's hard to feel like you deserve quality care when the care doesn't look like you. And I think I have so much responsibility with this platform to be a part of that representation. And I take it very seriously because I want to not only help our community and do advocacy work for our community and connect with our community, but I want to, you know, kind of from the inside out in the mental health field, deconstruct the problems that are arising and the systemic issues that are at play. Um, you know, it's funny because you say that you, you know, pull up a seat at the table by sharing our stories. I think what I'm doing with Brown Girl Therapy is creating an entirely new table. Yes. And I think that's, the, I think that's the thing that is so important is that people, you know, I read that I read a quote, and I forget who said it, um, I think it was a tweet by someone who was like implying that 
um, you know, black people or brown people deserve a seat at the table still implies power um, and giving that power to white people. Whereas I think what we need to be doing is we need to build, you know, we need to build communities and tables ourselves as one rather than waiting for someone to give us that seat. Mm, absolutely. And we're seeing that happen through your platform every single day. And you recently had your first public speaking <laughs> opportunity through Brown Girl Therapy. What was that like, Sahaj? And it uh, was like with Laxa and it looked like it went so well. But I know like from the back end of just us talking about it, like that was a big deal and a big moment. Yeah, it was incredibly scary. <laughs> Public speaking is not my forte and it's something I'm trying to lean into because I know that it's going to be a part of my career, especially with Brown Girl Therapy and uh, being, a, you know, becoming a mental health professional. Um, it was two hours of talking straight. I did tons of research and I think a couple things that I learned was one, it can often, it felt before the presentation that I wasn't speaking on anything new. And I had to be reminded by a mentor that just because I've lived it and I've researched it and I know it so well, like the back of my hand doesn't mean it's not going to be new to someone else. And I'm like, that just makes me someone who has a lot more knowledge on this topic. So I spoke on clinical considerations when working with children of immigrants. And part of that presentation included um, how to build and foster wellness um, and community through social media. So I talked a little bit about brown girl therapy and what I'm doing. And so um, maybe 70% of the people who came were white mental health professionals. And it felt really empowering to feel like I was able to represent um, an underserved population and speak to people who are in Cal mostly in California where there are almost 50% children of immigrants and to be able to be like, here's how you can serve this population better. Um, I think one of the things I've learned through social media is that a lot of mental health professionals and wellness pages I see are creating content that tends to be um, catered to the mental health field. So they're using a lot of big psychoeducation words. They're using a lot of um, content that doesn't necessarily feel like it hits a certain experience. Um, and I think that's something that I do differently is that I take what I'm learning and I spend hours doing the research and I spend hours thinking about how it applies to my own personal experience. And then I spend hours writing and creating the content so other people can relate to it and realize that the work I'm building here is not just, you know, um, aimless writing and sharing. It's like real mental health content and tools and uh, revelations that just we're not taught in a textbook or we're not taught academically or we're not taught in our families to deal with or manage. Um, and so it's, you know, I, I digress a little bit, but I think the, the speaking engagement taught me that there, I'm just, I'm ready to be in the space where I can teach white people essentially how to better serve us because they're not going anywhere and there needs to be more of us doing that work, right? So um, another thing that I've been dealing with is, um, plagiarists and that the thing I just want to touch on it because the thing that really hurts and is is sad to me is that th I think all of us all of us brown people need to create platforms we need to if that's something that you want to do create it talk on it write on it share your story there can be hundreds of us it's not just because I'm in the space you can't be in the space and I think that tends to be the scarcity mindset that we have as children of immigrants um, because if you look on Instagram if you look out in the world there are hundreds of white people creating the same spaces. Um, so why can't we have more representation? Why can't there be more of us doing the same things and similar work? Mm, and I, I 
really appreciate you bringing that up. I was going to ask about it a little bit later, but it's such an important piece because I think we can get so excited when we see someone like us sharing their stories and the resonance of that. And that excitement can sometimes move past like certain values around integrity, ethics, or just like staying in your own authenticity and your own authentic experience. Mm -hmm. And it can feel hard when you're seeing someone share their story and it's so aligned. So you might take that as like, okay, like I can just use this, but plagiarism is still plagiarism, mm -hmm. even when we're playing on social media. Um, and one thing that leads me to is like, you build a strong army of humans who are like going to bat for brown girl therapy, um, who are sharing with you when they're seeing things that feel unethical, when they're sharing things that, um, about themselves and their experiences. What has brown girl therapy taught you about community building in terms of community building on social media? I, it, so I didn't build Brown Girl Therapy with the assumption that it would become as big as it did. Mm -hmm. And I think that right there tends to be a different approach than some people who build platforms um, because I'm not building it to be famous or to, um, you know, I didn't expect to be the representation that people are seeking in the mental health field. I'm, I'm doing it because it's truly, I'm passionate about mental health for children of immigrants. It's like, and you know, period and stop there. Like that's, that's literally my passion. I'm called to do it. So I'm doing it. Um, I think what I've been learning is that by having that approach, I genuinely try to connect with everyone who sends me a message, who sends me an email, who reaches out to me. Um, I think we grow in connection with each other. And so for me, I don't care how many followers you have or who you are, or where you're from. If you're reaching out, I will try my best to connect with you, learn from you, help you, assist you, um, and be a part of this community because we grow in connection with each other. All of us do, me included. I'm not an expert just because I'm the one who's running this platform, right? I'm learning alongside everyone else. And I think um, that's why people have been so loyal um, because I am trying to be as genuine and authentic as I possibly can. And when I make mistakes, I try to own them. When I see something, I try to be vulnerable about it. When I um, struggle, I try to admit it. And so I think I'm not approaching this as feeling like I have some superiority over anyone else in this uh, population because I don't. And in that way, when you're seeing these stories come in in your DMs, because obviously when your resonance is so deep, and it goes beyond uh, children of immigrants who are South Asian only. Um, it's very universal and we can see that not only in the comments, but the engagement with the shares, with all of it. How do you hold space for yourself and set boundaries when you're seeing, um, when you're seeing, sorry, I read Mitch's comment just around an echo. I know, I are you still hearing. getting an echo? I feel like I'm trying to hold it, but it might be the room I'm in. <laughs> it's okay. Also, Mitch. Yeah, that's not my name. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch is my husband. Everybody, just so you I know, know him. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. We have had many a night in New York gallivanting, which is also amazing, and I miss those days. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, but boundaries. How do you protect yourself when you have? an incoming um, like onslaught and just incredible messages coming in from folks. How do you take care of yourself and set that boundary with DGT? It's a good question. Um, <laughs> a work in progress. It's something that I think I will always be learning because again, all of this um, resonance and the growth has been really unexpected. So 
I don't have a lot of free time anyways in my schedule. And I think, you know, I've just had to set really hard boundaries around when I'm on social media, when I'm not, when I feel okay to respond, when I don't, I need to remember that I'm not, I don't owe anyone all of my time just because I'm showing up here. And I think that's a really hard lesson to learn because it makes me feel like I'm not doing the service I want to be doing for the community. But in order for me to be my best self and show up in my best self and create this content and do this work, um, I have to take care of myself and my boundaries and my emotional energy, mental energy. And so um, I think I try once a month at least to have a story up about how I can't respond to all the DMs. I try to read a lot of them. Um, I will try to skim once in a while. And if I see that someone is reaching out for some kind of specific help, um, I'll respond with like a therapy database. Um, you know, I want to make sure I'm being ethical too, because as someone who is going to be a licensed profession professional, I'm not allowed to give specific advice. Um, it's really important that people understand I'm not a therapist yet. Um, I'm in the mental health field, but that's not something that I can do. And social media is not a replacement for that. This is just a community for us to find our own healing and transformation through connection with each other, but it should supplement other forms of self-care and mental health care. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's such a big part of being someone who is not in the mental health space or licensed. Like that is something that is so important for us to share with integrity when you're supporting people. And in my case, through resilience education mm -hmm. to say that this is one piece of a bigger puzzle and that there are other supports and this might be the entry point for you, mm -hmm. but that use this as a bridge to the next, to, to the getting, seeking that professional support. And you share a lot about finding, uh, a therapist who works well for you and I have therapist dated a lot until I found my current therapist who has actively decolonized her practice and is a white woman but is a white woman who is very aware of her privileges and names certain things around pra our practice when we're in session around like white supremacy and, and the experiences of women of color around gaslighting by white women and all these things but that took me time mm -hmm. so what advice do you have for folks who are watching who are ready to dabble or maybe have gone to therapy and then write it off because the one person they spoke to was not for them. I remember one of my first, like when I was searching for a therapist a few years ago, I was on a call and I was talking about my experience um, as a South Asian woman. And without that context of how our families work, especially Punjabi, like in our case as Punjabi sick women, mm -hmm. there was just so much that I felt like educating that I was doing in that situation. And I think mm -hmm. we're seeing a lot online right now around, um, especially black and indigenous people of color who are saying they're educating their therapists more than they are using that time for themselves. Mm -hmm. So what advice do you have to find a culturally competent therapist? Good question. I tried to write about this and give how to's in, um, there's a few posts in on the Brown Girl Therapy page. Um, if you just scroll to down, you'll see one that uh, in big letters says how to find a therapist. But <clears throat> my advice is yes, uh, don't let one bad experience stop you from trying. I think that's a big one. Like I said, it's really hard to feel like you deserve quality care when it doesn't look like you. And so it can be really easy to write it off and just be like, it's not for me because they don't know anything about my struggles. And I understand the sentiment of not wanting to spend your time explaining. I mean, we're literally going to therapy is a transaction, right? Like you're paying someone to provide a certain service for you. So I understand the hesitation and the reservation. Um, 
my advice would be to set up a lot of consultations, a lot. It can be really tiring. Do it in your own time as you have the energy. But with each consultation, it's really important to know that you're allowed to ask whatever question you want to ask, you know, how will the therapist, um, you know, uh, chart your growth or your progress? Like, what does that look like for them in the way that they do therapy? Um, have they ever worked with someone from your background? Uh, how have they practiced culturally affirming therapy? Do they do trainings? Are they, do they have supervision? Like, what does that look like for them? Um, it's uncomfortable and it can feel like a lot of people tend to think that going to therapy is like going to a doctor where if they are a specialist in something, they'll just know exactly how to help you. But the, sadly, that's just not how it works. There are lots of different forms of becoming a therapist. Um, so look up all of the letters next to their name, look up the letters that are in their website or on their page, um, do your research, but most importantly, ask a lot of questions. And if you're uncomfortable, be honest with yourself. If you're uncomfortable after the first session, if you're uncomfortable after the fourth session, that's okay. Um, it is a lot like dating, right? Like you have to get to know someone a little bit more before you can make the decision of whether or not you want to keep seeing them or you see a future with them. And therapy is a lot like that. Mm -hmm. um, my other piece of advice would be don't write off white therapists. I think it's really easy to feel like you need someone who either shares a background with you or looks like you in order to get the help you want. Um, and yes, sometimes that might be exactly what you need, but sometimes it might not. And I think it's important to remember that no matter what the therapist looks like or how they identify or what their intersection of identities are, they should be very curious about how your identity affects you, no matter who they are or how their identity affects them. Um, and I think some people tend to forget that they think, well, they're brown, they're Indian, they, you know, live in the same place as me, they'll know exactly what I'm going through. Um, and that's, that shouldn't be the case. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say like, there's, that's why the training happens in the way that it does. And that's mm -hmm. why when you seek and find someone who is curious or who is, you know, open to becoming more culturally competent to decolonizing their practices, you can find a nice little home there. Yeah. Um, and I, I really enjoyed my therapy dating because for a few years I didn't have a therapist. I was working with coaches, which is like not certified necessarily, like all of that. But I just needed one, something that was covered by insurance and two, someone who could mix the business side of my life with the mm -hmm. trauma that I'm still healing from. And so just know that like, if you do a deep enough dive, people, you will find, you will find your person guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, I saw um, a white woman from the Midwest when I was living in New York for three years. And I went to go see her for something really specific. She was really helpful. She specialized in it. And then I decided to keep seeing her as a personal development type thing. Right. And so um, there came a point where we talked a lot about my family and my relationship with my parents. And I felt a little bit judged by certain things that I said that were cultural that she may not have understood. I had two options at that point. I could end therapy on the spot and be like, this isn't for me. Or what I did was talk to her about it and say, I feel like I'm doing a lot of explaining here and it's making me feel like this isn't worth my money or time. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how we can fix that because I do really, you know, I do feel like I've been getting a lot from seeing you. And she ended up doing research on her own and looking things up and doing that education herself and knowing that it wasn't my responsibility 
to teach her and she checked her own personal biases. I could tell from then on that she was a lot more um, understanding and patient and curious in the right ways, not necessarily me having to explain things, but curious about how things affected me personally in the, in the systems I live in. And sometimes us asking those questions can completely transform someone's own perspective and practice. Mm -hmm. So while it might be hard and labor in that moment, it's like the, the opportunity after is also very high, but also for folks who feel like that's not labor or like they don't have the capacity to ask those questions in that moment, totally fair as well. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about your summer because you were working full time. Yes. Going to school for full time and running BGT during a global pandemic and while civil unrest was happening. Yeah. So how did you survive? How did you manage that? Because I think for a lot of people too, in the South Asian context, like type A, like us knowing that big, we're meant for big things. There are big dreams in our future, big goals mm -hmm. and going all out and having growth in the way that you've had growth, but also working towards this program that is actually like a renowned program as well. Like you're, you're, you're reaching for excellence across the board mm -hmm. and that can take a personal toll. Mm -hmm. um, so how, and we talked a little bit about boundaries, but how have you been caring for yourself in this really intense season? So I will admit that I don't think I did a good job during the six weeks of summer school. It, like you said, happened during the civil unrest, the racial injustices. I was trying to be um, active outside of school and work to, you know, go to protests and do what I felt was what I was needed to do to be a part of the advocacy. Um, it was a lot of emotional burning out. I um, had my head down a lot of the time. And I think a lot of my relationships suffered, including my husband, who I live with, I barely got any time with him. Um, Brown girl therapy, which a lot of people may not think it suffered because they're just seeing you know, what I'm posting, but it was harder for me at that time. And school is just really um, high intensive. And for six weeks with three classes, one of them was trauma counseling, which just added to all of the, um, the stress and the civil unrest and the things that I was trying to learn and deal with. It was a weird balance because I felt like I was doing something proactive. I was learning about trauma counseling in a moment when I knew that trauma counseling is so important, especially because, you know, a lot of the research I did for that class was on racial based trauma, but it's equally as tiring and exhausting. And so something I realized after the fact just recently was that I needed to be better about reaching out to my friends and I wasn't during the time. Instead, I just kind of put a wall up and said, everyone leave me alone. I don't have time to talk. I don't have time to engage. This is just going to be my life for six weeks and it is what it is. Um, after the fact, when I connected with friends again, I was like, why did I do that? I wish I had like, I wish I had been better about setting even 15 minutes on a Sunday to talk to one of my best friends. <clears throat> Cause that would have been so emotionally nurturing and fulfilling and restorative just to have that space and connection. Um, so that's something I wish I had done. I also wish I had been better about movement. I went days without leaving my apartment which I know that if that was, if, if, if the six weeks was longer, it wouldn't have been sustainable. I would have like actually burned out. Um, but, you know, movement is really important. It's something I wish I had done. I honestly just didn't do a good job of taking care of myself. I can tell you what I learned. I wish I connected with friends. I wish I moved. I wish I ate better. I wish I like prioritized sleep in the moments when I thought I just needed to keep reading and doing work. Um, these are all small things that I felt would have made a huge difference at the time. 
And I think it's so helpful for hearing for folks right now who are listening because the pressure we're all feeling across the board is so compounded mm-hmm. and we can so easily, we did a podcast episode on burnout last week mm-hmm. and it's so easy when we're in the inertia and when like, just like you said, when we're in that inertial loop of saying, I just got to keep going. I can't stop. I can't stop is like when that intervention of needing to stop happens. And like you shared, like I'm someone who also, who can work well in sprints. Mm-hmm. And so that six weeks, like you said, if it was longer, if it became chronic longer than that, that's when the real intense burnout can happen. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to share because even as creators or mental health professionals in the making, or eventually when you are uh, licensed, we're still having to take care of ourselves mm-hmm. and prioritize ourselves. And it's always a challenge because there's always more to be done, especially when you're marginalized within the industry that you're in. You yeah. always feel like that burden is on your shoulders. And it's, you know, when you feel like you're called to help others and serve others, it's really easy to forget that you need to give to yourself as well. Um, there are days, even just this weekend, where I didn't do anything for Brown Girl Therapy. I didn't, I rarely posted on a story. I didn't check in. I didn't do anything. I didn't even really celebrate the 100K until today. And I was, you know, I was like, I woke up on Monday and was like, wow, I feel so restored and new <laughs> that I took some time away. But I also, during the weekend, felt incredibly guilty because I was like, people might be relying on this platform. People might be waiting to see what the next thing I'm going to post. And maybe that's me tooting my horn too much. I don't know. But it felt like I'm called to do this. And I'm like, there are people counting on me. I need to keep showing up. Mm-hmm. But I think it's easy to conflate the need to show up with never taking time off. And that's not true, right? Like, yes, you can show up all the time by still showing up for yourself. Yes. And if anything, and I'm learning that as I'm in this launch process for my resilience masterclass, we're a week into the sales period, and the inertia loop happens and the self doubt kicks in and all the the triggers, all the things because as we're building what we're meant to build in the world, Mm -hmm. it's going to constantly be challenging us to say, Where's this boundary? Yeah. How are you going to prioritize yourself? Where are you making space for yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, something else I want to talk about as we wrap up this conversation. And yes, to everyone who's asking if this will be saved, it's going to be saved over on my main feed. We are going to share it there. And then I'll tag Sahaj so she can share it in her stories as well for BGT. Um, is when you work in the helping space and when you work in supporting others through whether it's mental health whether it's coaching in this in this space and arena and especially as women particularly women of color let's get granular money is a hard thing yes (laughs) and I am a very proud friend to see your patreon go live Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago because I see how insanely hard you work on brown girl therapy and on this platform And because you are not licensed yet, you're not working one-on-one with clients. And this is, it's beyond passion. This is making massive impact for people. Mm -hmm. So I think it's so incredible that you are creating a way for folks to compensate you for your time, for your work, because you do, you spend hours and hours creating those posts. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. And so for anyone who is excited about what brown girl therapy has brought to your life to your family to the people around you like please consider contributing to sahaj's patreon and can you share a little bit about what it was like to bring that into the world and i know that there's more to come and we'll get to that in a sec Mm -hmm. but this is i'm proud of you as a friend so i just want you to talk thank you (laughs) thank you and thank you for bringing that up i mean it's 
like you said, it's really hard um, as a woman and then as a woman of color to feel like you can, I don't feel like I belong in the mental health space. I'll say that first. Um, it doesn't look like me. I'm not learning about people like me. I have to actively do the work outside of school, even though I'm paying for an education to learn how certain things can be uh, used for my community and in ways that are helpful and how I can relate the content back to my own experiences and give that to the community. And so when you don't feel like you belong in a space, it's hard to feel like you're allowed to take up space. And that's something I struggle with very often. And then on top of that, it feels like you can't charge for taking up space because there's no one else that looks like you and you need to just be there and do it and you know put your head down and you know just call it an act of love and it is an act of love but it's not sustainable for me to keep building brown girl therapy without financially being able to sustain my own life outside of it right especially if i want to do it full time um something that i'm trying to grapple with right now is how capitalistic the mental health industry is and how expensive it can be and how inaccessible it is and that is part of why I'm doing brown, like I'm running Brown Girl Therapy is because I want it to be an accessible community funded place where we can do and start the healing work, right? Again, it's not a replacement for therapy, but if you don't have access to therapy, at least you have access to something. And so by fighting against the capitalistic nature for me, it means that it will be community funded, that I rely on community funds in order to keep running. Um, and so that's where Patreon came from. It came from a place of wanting to be of service, but knowing in order to be of service, I needed to get a little bit in return. And I really struggle with asking for anything in return. Um, it's still not easy when I see people coming in as patrons. I'm shocked. I'm humbled. Um, but what it does for me is A, it makes me feel seen and valued. And B, it gives me even more drive to keep showing up even more and in even deeper ways. Um, and hopefully it'll come to a place where I can do it completely full time. Because when that happens, I'm shocked at what I've been able to build by giving 25% of my time to Brown Girl Therapy. I like, am so my dream is to be able to do it 100% of the time and see the massive impact that we can have as a community on the mental health field, but also for each other. Mm, and I'm so excited <laughs> for all of that because your your wins are my wins and i feel Thanks. so elevated by seeing you so in your truth and power Thank and it's you. been a privilege to watch that happen over the last two years um so what is ahead for bgt what can those of you uh, from your community from my community look forward to what's to come I've been seeing a lot of like how to take the community off the platform mm -hmm. so that that community building can really happen even in stronger ways. Mm -hmm. So fill us in a little bit on what's what's to come. So I've started, um, you know, doing a few conversation clubs, which have been really intimate conversations with 12 women total or 12 people. I shouldn't say women. It's been women so far, but it's for anyone who wants to join. Um, and they're themed and they have been two hours each and they have been so incredible. Just that intimate conversation space, um, being able to talk about things that we don't feel safe talking about anywhere else. Um, it's peer to peer support in a way that I feel like we don't get access to in our community. Um, so that's something that I want to keep offering and I wanna offer you know, 10 times more um, each month because it's important to me. So I'm working on 
finding other facilitators to help me in that space. That way it's not just me being pulled in so many directions. Um, I'm also working on workshops, which I'm really excited about because Y'all, these are going to be great. I know a little bit about these workshops. And yeah. So good. Yeah. And I'm excited because I want them to be cohort style where we get even closer with one another through an entire month or through three different meetings versus just one conversation club. So there's lots of different, um, you know, tiers of what I want to offer. And of course, you know, I want to maintain accessibility. So I'm, my goal is that 25% of each offering will always be pay what you can or donate or free, um, whatever that means for the community, because that's important to me. But I think I'm starting to get burned out on Instagram. I don't want to stop creating content for it, but I don't want it to be the only thing I'm doing anymore. Mm. I've gotten the community. So now what can we do as a community offline to keep doing this work together and healing and, and like I said, grow in connection with one another. It's the most powerful thing, I think. Mm, I love that so much. And I love everything that you do. I love you so much. I love you. <laughs> I need us to take, if, if you can hold your phone away from me, we got to do a little so that we can have a little smiley <laughs> thumbnail. <laughs> if you put your head a little higher, that would, yes, there we go. This is that awkward. <laughs> Um, and thank you everybody for tuning in. This is part of my lessons in resilience series that I am doing in the lead up to my first ever masterclass called the next right step, which is a masterclass series Check it out. Check and it leadership. Out. <laughs> I'm announcing all of our special guests who are going to be coming in to help co-train with me in the program. It launches July 29th, goes to August 26th, and you can head over to my link in bio to find out all about it. It's going to be an incredible five weeks. It's going to help you come through and find clarity, feel grounded, feel connected to yourself. And it's going to be filled with conversations like this. Thank you so much, Sahaj. Of course, I you're, you're, I'm you. happy to be here. I did this as a friend, but I want everyone listening to know that I also did this because I wholeheartedly believe what you're offering. And I know that it's going to be life-changing. And so if you're wondering what it is, go check out Como's page, check out the link in her bio read everything that she's offering. Um, if you've you know, enjoyed her energy here, which is already incredible, imagine the kind of energy you're gonna get when she's really in her element, um, helping you guys and educating you on resilience. I love, love you. you. <laughs> <laughs> Have the best day. You and too. thank you so much. Have the best day, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode, everybody. Oh my goodness. My heart is so full. My cup is so full listening to that again. And it means the world that you tuned in. And I hope, as I said off the top, it gave you an opportunity to reflect on the types of communities you want to bring into your life, um, how you want to expand your community, how you want to feel more supported in your life, and that you allow yourself to create that action plan and take the next steps necessary in order to find that support, build that support in your life. And we're going to be continuing with some of the interviews from the Lessons in Resilience series over the next few weeks. And I'm going to be bringing that series back to Instagram in September. So stay tuned and DM me or email me with some ideas of who you think I should interview next. I'd love to know who you want to see on the show. And that's it for me for this week. I hope that you have a beautiful week ahead. And until next time, bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you loved this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
And if you want to follow me, Komal, check me out on Instagram at K-O-M-A-L-M-I-N-H-A-S or the show at LessonsLearned.co. And if you have an idea of a lesson that we should dive into on the show, then slide into our DMs and submit there or on the website along with any guests you think I should interview and talk all of the things with. As always, I hope that you make some time for you this week and reflect on the lessons you're learning or have learned and take some time to celebrate all the incredible that is you. Until next time, guys. Bye.